It's a pleasure to be with you all again this morning as we continue our three-part series on the Trinity, in particular the Triune God and His role in our salvation. Now for those that missed the introductory uh, video Pastor Luke and I made a couple weeks back, um, I was assigned the task of preaching a three-part series on the Trinity. I, I had to pick some aspect of the Trinity to teach upon. As I contemplated and prayed about what area of focus I should concentrate on, I kept coming back to this. What is the single most important doctrine in Scripture? I mean, what, what's the one doctrine that our entire life in future eternity depends upon? It happens that this doctrine is also misunderstood and misguided and mistaught at times. You hear a lot by asking people, what do Christians believe on how to be right with God? And you're going to hear a variety of answers. Perhaps even in the church, if you were to ask your fellow church members, how is, man right made, how is man made right with God, what would they say? If you've been a Christian for any number of time, you quickly recognize that the answer, the right answer in every Sunday school class is Jesus, right? I mean, you can ask my four-year-old daughter, Evelyn, at home. Her first answer to everything is Jesus, right? It's got to be Jesus. And certainly that's true. I mean, the, the main crux, the main focus, the emphasis of the entire scriptures are constantly pointing to Christ, the Messiah. But if that's all that we understand about our salvation, is that Christ died for sinners, our understanding of the gospel is certainly lacking. We don't see how the triune God works perfectly in harmony with each other, all equally necessary to bring about this salvation, to bring about the redemption of man. And a failure to understand this affects other areas of our life. It affects sanctification, it affects discipleship, and affects the very chief end of all mankind that I talked about last week. If our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, we must know and understand this true God. We need to know Him as the triune God. Now last week we looked at the Father's role in this salvation. We've seen that the Father had a plan from eternity past. From before the foundations of the earth, He had a plan to redeem for Himself a people. We've we seen in great love, he, he chose and predestined a people for adoption to bring him into his family as sons and daughters. In order to accomplish this, we've seen the Father is the one that sent his Son to accomplish this work. So this week, we're going to turn our attention to his Son, to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we're going to see the Son's role in accomplishing this salvation for his people through his atoning work on the cross. Jesus' role is to accomplish salvation for his people through his atoning work on the cross. So we're going to examine this atonement by looking at our need for the atonement, what this atonement actually is, and then how do we obtain it. Fair enough? So we're going to look at why we need atonement, what this atonement is, and how do we obtain it. Pray with me. O oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning after a long week 
a lot of us are, are either homeschooling children or working or uh, perhaps we're concerned about finances and not able to work. There's the coronavirus and, and we, perhaps we have loved ones that are sick. So we have a lot on our hearts and our minds as we come this morning to this text. So Lord, help us to cast all our cares and concerns upon you this morning. Help us clear our thoughts and our minds and, and for the next amount of time, focus on you and your word. We pray that you glorify yourself. Help Christ shine. Help him be known. We pray for those that are at home watching. We pray for mercy the children to listen and obey. Help us as we hear from you that we take these truths, not just for an intellectual gain, but to be transformative. Help to actually affect how we live. Help us as we're done to praise and glorify you. Help us share this great news of salvation to others and help us be emboldened in our trust and faith in you, Lord. Lord, help get this man out of the way. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of mind. Protect my mouth from error. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, open your Bibles to John 3.16. John 3.16. Most of you probably have heard this, know this. But we're going to read John 3:16 through verses 21, just as our launching point as we begin this discussion. John 3:16 through 21. It says this: "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come to the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work shall be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to, comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. If you're a Christian for any amount of time, you, you've probably heard this verse. In fact, if you're not Christian, you still probably have heard this verse. I, I remember Tim Tebow a couple years back used to paint this verse on his face when he played football. John 3.16 but if we ever stopped and asked ourselves, why did he have to come? Like, why did God have to send his only begotten son? Why? Paul lays this case out for us in Romans. If you can turn to Romans 1 with me, we're going to see in Romans 1.18 what he says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In Genesis, we, we see the creation of man. Adam and Eve were made perfect. And in fact, after Adam and Eve, we were all created in the image of God. We were, we were created to mirror him. Kind of like a mirror that's held 45 degrees. We're, we're supposed to reflect the image of God. And Adam and Eve, instead of just reflecting the image of God, we find out that they wanted to be like God. Not in his holiness and righteousness, but they wanted to be like him in, in terms of their autonomy, their ruler of their own life. So they disobeyed God. They rebelled against him and put themselves on their throne. And men and women everywhere do this. Everyone knows this true and living God. But they don't want this God in their knowledge. So they switch him with idols. They exchange him for something that's not God. And this is the problem with all humanity. All false religions, all false cults, as if there's true cults, but all cults, all false teachers, they don't want the true God. So sometimes they make something kind of like him, maybe. Right? They, they create buildings like this, they create their own text, their own scripture. They, they create their own rituals, their own sacrifices to these false gods. They, they switch the image of a true God for something like him. And sometimes image bearers switch this true God for idols that are not religious looking. Right? We, we switch something... Uh, we switch God for something that's like God, that, that can hopefully satisfy us. Right? We're, we're broken people. We, we need peace. We need joy. We need pleasure. So do we run to the one true God that actually offers true peace, true joy, true delight, and wholeness? No! We, we switch out that true God for bottles, pills, we, we long for uh, affection and acceptance. So do we run to the one true God that offers it to be redeemed, brought to his family, to be made whole, to be, to be loved and accepted in Christ? No. What do we do? We turn to relationships. We turn to other people. Right? I remember what it was like to be a teenager. Right? You want to fit in, be the cool kids. Right? So you start doing different things bad things, not listen to your parents in order to be accepted. You want to be loved, accepted. And we seek that out in other relationships other than God. 
We revolt against this true God who created us beautifully. We, we take his beautifully created order and revolt against that. Man and women. Sexuality. We, we, we pervert the natural order of God. We know this true God. We just don't want him. We're haters of God. We're enemies of God. This is what Paul's saying in Romans 1. You know this true God. You just don't want him. Now, Jews certainly would be listening to this. And you can imagine some self-righteous Jew that's sitting here listening. It's like, yeah, that's right, Paul. Get them. Get them. You tell these ungodly Gentiles. Man, they're, they're switching out God for false gods. They pervert sexuality. They're disobeying. I mean, you, you tell them, Paul. Get them. Paul says, hold on, hold on. Look at chapter 2. He says, don't, don't think I didn't forget about you, Jewish person. He says, therefore, you have no excuse either, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the same things. The Jews could run around saying, don't lie. Why? Because God tells you don't lie. But then Paul says, do you do it? Don't you lie too? You got to get this. They were bragging because they had the law. But Paul's saying this. Just because you have the law, you're not right before God. Just because you can tell others what God says does not make you right with God. See, the thing is, we all need Jesus. We see it in chapter 1 that all the Gentiles, we see in chapter 2 all the Jews, we all need Jesus, and it brings us right to chapter 3. What does he say? Are we then? Are we better than they? Paul saying as a Jew? He says, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. A passage we all know, Romans 3.23, right? For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 says you're dead in your sins. A helpless state. Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. No one does good. Now, if you were to ask a person, okay, well, how does, I mean, does God, can't God just forgive my sins? Right? I mean, isn't that what we do? We just kind of pray, God, hey, God, I, I, I sin, forgive me, and we're good? Well, the problem is, God's good and he's just. He can't just overlook it. This is what it says in Proverbs seventeen fifteen. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both alike, are an abomination to God. God just can't overlook the sin. He can't just say, it's okay, I forgive you. It's all good. Let's just move on. He can't do that. And we know this from an earthly level. If somebody were to break into my house and, and kill my entire family, and that criminal stood before a judge, he, he can't say to this judge, judge, hey, I do a lot of good, though. I help out the community. I really take care of my family. I mean, the judge, if he's, if he's a good and just judge, he's going to look at him and say, good, you, you ought to be doing those things. But you're still guilty of the crime. You still need to be punished. If he's a good and just judge, he will condemn the sinner. He can't overlook it. 
And then now you may say, well, this seems to be like a really harsh penalty. You're saying that if the wrath of God is on just even one little sin? Well, yeah, because at times we, we like to take these sins and compare them to other sins and see which one's worse. But that's not the issue. The, the issue is who are we sinning against? For instance, take lying. If I lie to a stranger on the street, what happens to me? Probably nothing, right? If I lie to my wife, though, what could happen? I might be sleeping on the couch, right? If, if I lie to my boss, what happens? I could lose my job. And if I lie to the government, what happens? I could go to jail. It's the same sin, though. But depending on who the sin is committed against, the penalty increases, and there's no one bigger, more holy, the infinite, powerful, loving, merciful God, the very creator of all life, who gives you the very breath you breathe, and you sin against him. Therefore, the penalty is so much infinitely greater. It's because you sin against a holy God. But see, this is where Christianity distinguishes itself from every other religion. It's here at Christianity where we can tie justice and love together. And it's found at the cross of Christ. It's through Christ's atoning work, through his life, death, and resurrection, that, that we see this justice and love coming together. It's through Christ's atonement. Which brings us to the next point then. So then what is this atonement? I want to submit to you, we're going to look at four different aspects that make up atonement. So four different aspects that make up atonement. Four different ways of looking at atonement that the Bible gives us. The first one is this. Atonement is a substitutionary sacrifice. This is found all throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, we, we see it with the ram taking the place for Isaac. We, we see the day of atonement created for, for the sacrifice for atonement for Israel in Leviticus 16-17. Right? There's the question that must be asked. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of sinful people? So God institutes the Day of Atonement, where two goats were to be offered. One is a sacrifice, the other is the scapegoat. The one that was a sacrifice had his blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. Leviticus 17.11 says this, For life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It pays that penalty. The other is the scapegoat, where the sins are imputed by laying hands to the goat. It's symbolic. It's supposed to represent that the sins being laid on the goat and then banished from the presence of God. It, both of these were symbolic to, to demonstrate the, the penalty being paid and the guilt and, and shame being removed from the presence of God. Besides this Day of Atonement, we also see that the Passover was instituted. I mean, we have the, the very first Passover in Exodus 12. There was sprinkled blood, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentil. It is through this that the angel of death were to pass over their houses. D. Carson gives this example. He says, picture this. Picture two Jewish fellows talking with each other on the day of the first Passover. 
One's name was Smith, the other was Brown. Two, two remarkably Jewish names, right? So, so Smith turns to Brown and says, hey, are, are you nervous about tonight? I, I mean, it's kind of scary. The angel of death is supposed to be coming for the firstborn. Brown turns and is like, no, what are, you, what are you talking about? God, God told us what to do through his servant Moses, right? I mean, haven't, haven't you prepared? Didn't you kill the lamb? Did you not put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil? Well, yeah, of course I did. I'm not dumb. Like, I, of course I did that, but it's still scary. I mean, have you noticed what's been going on the past few weeks? I mean, water's turning into blood, and, and now the angel of death is coming? I mean, look, you got three sons, but I got one, and I love my little Charlie, right? It's, it's some scary stuff. I'll sure be happy when this night's over. Then the other one turns to him, says, bring it on. I trust in the promises of God. That night, the angel of the Lord came. Which one lost their son? Neither. Neither. Because it's not about the intensity of faith. It's about the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of the lamb that is the ground for our assurance before God. And this is all, of course, pointing, pointing us, pointing Israel to the true and ultimate lamb. John 1, 29 says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, But when Christ appears, a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that this is to say not of creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one true sacrifice that actually put an end to all sin. He put away the sin of his people. He continues to be high priest. He continues to intercede and mediate on behalf of his people. He's the spotless one. His obedient life, he was righteous, pure, perfect, holy. His life from conception to death is substitutionary in nature. It was a voluntary act of self-denial, an offering presented to the Father as head of this new covenant community in which he is both the offerer and the offering. In Hebrews 9.14 says, He offered himself without blemish. He was also the scapegoat. The sins on Jesus were laid. They were imputed to him. Isaiah 53, 6 predicted this well before Jesus came. He says that the Father would lay on him the sin of us all. 1 Peter 2, 24, he bore our sins on the tree. Amazingly, th this concept is not just that our sins are imputed to Jesus, but we get his holy life imputed to us. So we think just because God forgives us that we're good and we can live forever with God. But this is what he says. He says, be perfect for I am perfect. Right? He says, be holy for I am holy. The only way to enter the kingdom is with this perfect righteousness. You must be perfect. So if you stand before God in the last day and you say, God, here, I'm here to offer you up my righteousness to you. You won't make it. None of us will. 
None of us have that perfect righteousness. None of us are perfectly holy. It's Christ's righteousness. It's his righteousness imputed to us. He, it's the great exchange, the most unfair exchange in the history of all man, where Jesus takes on our sin as a holy, perfect one, takes on death, gives us the life, and gives us his righteousness so that we can live forever. And Paul understood this well. Philippians 3, 8-9 says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that what comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is our righteousness. That is the only way we can stand before an infinite holy God in his presence. So it leaves with a question, right? So, so what happened to Israel then? Like what actually takes the sin away then? Is it the sacrifice of these animals under the Mosaic Covenant? No. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus' sacrifice is ultimately what obtained the redemption for Israel. Romans 3.24.5 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, or depending on translation, a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. The question of God's justice could be called into effect here. Like how are the Old Testament saints justified? What actually paid the penalty that was due for them? If Hebrews 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then how did they get their sins forgiven? It seems like God just looked over their sins. But here we see that the justice of God was in effect. Jesus ultimately paid for them. Just like our salvation occurred in history 2,000 years prior, the Jews' salvation occurred years forward. Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There has always been only one means and one means only to be redeemed by God. And it's accomplished only through Christ's sacrifice. Now we see it more clearly being on this side of redemption, but it's true. It's only through Jesus' shed blood. See, the whole world fell under the representative head, Adam. We've all, all been under his divine curse and judgment. We all sin as, our, as Adam has. But we're restored to favor with God by the death of Christ, the second Adam, who fulfilled all righteousness. He bore the punishment of God on behalf of us, in our place. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And it's always been that way. So this substitutionary sacrifice, it removes the guilt and the penalty 
from sin. Another aspect of atonement is propitiation. That, that just means God's righteous anger against sin has been appeased by Christ. We see Israel being bold with their idolatry of the golden calf. God says this in Exodus 32.10. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. Moses tells the people the next day, you sin a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. God's wrath was ignited against the sin of Israel, against this idolatry, and Moses knows that the only solution is for atonement. Propitiation is clearly part of the concept of atonement. God's wrath being appeased. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had, to be like he, made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he may become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation removes the wrath incurred by sin. Another aspect of this atonement, besides the, the substitutionary sacrifice by removing guilt and penalty, Besides the propitiation, which removes the wrath incurred by sin, we, we see reconciliation being part of this atonement. Sin put enmity between God and man. I mean, Adam and Eve, when they first sinned, what was their response? They, they hid. They, they tried to break away from the fellowship with God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. God is now our enemy. For while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I mean, this is, this is amazing to think about. I put this in the context of a marriage, right? Your, your spouse sins against you, and maybe I'm the only one, but maybe some of you are like this as well, right? Your spouse sins against you. You know the right thing to say and do, right? Like, no, it's all right. I forgive you. But in your heart of hearts, you haven't, right? There's still this bitterness. There's still not a restoration of fellowship. Or, or perhaps the sin was so bad that, yes, you forgave them, but the fellowship is, is distorted maybe forever. This is not what God does to us, though. Through Christ, not only does he forgive our sins, but the very people that were haters of God and enemies of God, he not only just forgives them, but then reconciles and brings them into a fellowship with God. And if, if that's not amazing enough, get this. It's not even the sinner that did it. The one that was offended is the one that sought out this reconciliation. I mean, how many of us are like that? When we've been so deeply hurt, are we the ones that are trying to restore that fellowship? Not only does God forgive us, but he reconciles us and brings us back in. And he's the one that initiated it all.
Reconciliation removes the alienation. It removes the enmity caused by sin. And the last aspect I want us to look at is redemption. It's fundamentally a commercial, a transaction. It's the purchase of a payment of a ransom. It's often used of slaves. Matthew 20, 20, 28 says, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. It enables Paul to say in, in 1 Corinthians 6 that you've been bought with a price. Peter says you were ransomed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We see at the end of scriptures in Revelations 5.9, it says, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Humans, we, we naturally find ourselves in the bondage of, in the slavery of sin. We're captive. And we're only released from it by the costly ransom of the blood of Christ. We're redeemed from the slavery of sin. Even Ephesians 2 says we're in bondage to sin. John 8, 34 says we're enslaved to this sin. But yet Jesus comes, sheds his blood to make the payment, to purchase us, to redeem us. Who was this payment made to? Perhaps our first inclination is to say, well, it's got to be Satan, right? He was the one in the garden deceiving Adam and Eve. I mean, he's the one that seeks to destroy and, and deceive, right? Like, did, he, did he purchase us from Satan? Did he make the payment to Satan? No. This payment was made to God, the Father. God is perfectly holy. He is blameless. And because he is holy and blameless and just, it demands a just payment. Let me say it again. Because God is holy and just, his holiness demands a just payment. It's to him. Jesus redeems the people to and for God. He redeems us from the guilt of sin. He frees us from the power of sin that controls and dominates our lives. It says we were once slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. And one day the glorious promise is we'll be free from sinning ever again. We've been redeemed. We've been bought with a price. So then how do we obtain this atonement? Like, how do we get it? All saints, all believers in God from all human history have been saved through faith. Through faith. Believing sinners, believing that out of grace, God justifies his people through Christ. I mean, Romans 4 brings back Abraham. And what does he say about Abraham? Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It's always been saved by grace through faith. Always you're saved by grace through faith. Faith. We're, faith is believing who we are. We're believing that we are sinners. 
believing that we not only sin, but we are justly condemned. But also believing that out of this grace, this grace of God, God can and will justify us. And it's a gift, in Ephesians 2.89 says. It's a gift. You obtain this atonement, you obtain the sacrificial sacrifice, you obtain the appeasement of God's wrath. You obtain this reconciliation brought back into the fellowship with God. You obtain this redemption being bought out of your former condition of being slaves to your sin through faith. You, you can't do anything to muster up enough good works. You can't do anything uh, enough that's going to justify yourself. The, the, the Coming to church, reading your Bible, that's great, good, do it. But that's not what saves you. It's also not faith plus works. It's not, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do these things in order to be saved. Right? Some false religions say you have to believe, but you also have to do sacraments. We've already demonstrated, we can't, we're... we're, we're we need to be purchased. We need somebody outside of ourselves to come and save us. If it's dependent on my good works, I will fail. And I'll never obtain the righteousness. I'll never obtain the standard that is required to be in the presence of God. So as we close, what should our response be to this? I mean, looking back at our text last week from Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, three times it was written, these words, to the praise of his glory. Right? We, we looked at this, this salvation, this plan of the Father from the beginning of the world. Out of his great love, he chose and predestined a, a people to be adopted and brought into his family. And we see it was to the praise and the glory of his grace. In verse 7, the, the redemption we see is accomplished by Christ, his death. We see the forgiveness of sin. And we see it's to the praise of his glory. And he's going to say later on in verse 14 that we, it will also be to the praise of his glory. Maybe you can guess what I'm going to say. Maybe we should praise him for his glory. Right? To the praise of God's glorious grace. He is redeemed for himself a people, that he has made this possible, this, this, this gulf between God and man because of our sin. To the praise of his glory, he had love and mercy on us. Practically speaking, we should, we should be meditating on this. We should often think of the gospel. I mentioned last week at times we think that the gospel is just that thing to get us saved and now we can move on to the more deep and glorious truths of Scripture. No. Like, there is nothing more glorious. There is nothing more deep. I mean, we can think about the gospel for eternity and never figure it all out. We'll only be scratching the surface. We should often be praising God for what he's done for who he is and his love and mercy and, and having a plan to loving us and to bringing us in fellowship and to saving us, accomplishing the work through Christ. I mean, it should also affect our relationship, should it not? I, I mean, 
Are we quick to forgive others? Are we still holding on bitterness and resentment and anger because another brother or sister or, or even a family member or perhaps a spouse has sinned against us? I mean, the perfect sinless lamb was sent to live a perfect life, obedient life, and suffered a gruesome death. And that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part is he had the entire wrath of God poured out on him. But you can't forgive somebody for just sinning against you because they said an unkind word to you. Oftentimes, we struggle the most with forgiving people when the gospel is the furthest thing from our mind. Thinking about the gospel should impact our lives and our relationships. Not, not only that, it should humble us. Right? We should never come to the place where, where we've obtained salvation for ourselves. We should never come to the place where we have arrived, we have this self-righteous attitude, where we kind of look down at other brothers and sisters in Christ as if they haven't obtained our status yet. No, this should, this should floor all that nonsense. We all stand equally naked before this God in desperate need of his son's righteousness to cleanse us. It, it, parents, it should affect how we parent. Should it not? I mean, do, do we see opportunities with our kids as gospel opportunities because of what he's done for us? I mean, when our kids sin against us, do, do we see ourselves in the gospel story and how they did a sin like procrastination like, do I not do the same thing? Right? At times we have, a, we have a tendency to correct our kids, but in such a way that it, it, it neglects the gospel and how our kids, just like us, need the gospel. That we're not different than them. Their parents haven't arrived. It should affect how we are with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Are, are we quick to forgive? Are we quick to move on? It should motivate us to holiness. Because God himself is holy, we should be holy like him. Right? Ephesians 4.1, the very, the very same book where Paul, as he's meditating on the gospel, springs forth with this glorious praise to God. In that same book, he gets to chapter 4, and he says this, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of, to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The gospel, as we meditate and think about it, let's pray that that's true for ourselves. And if you're at home and you're watching this, and you've never come to the place where you've actually repented and put your faith and trust in Christ. You, you stand condemned underneath the wrath of God. In your unwickedness, you rebel against the Creator who you know exists. But let today be the day of your salvation. Repent. Turn, put your faith and trust into Christ and his work on the cross 
and you will be brought into this glorious family of God, being cared for and loved by the Father, having salvation accomplished for you on your behalf by Christ. Let today be that day. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we too, as we think about these glorious truths, as we think about the gospel, as we meditate upon your love, mercy, the planning out of redemption, Lord, help us to burst forth in praise. There's nothing in us that deserves it. There's nothing that merited it. Lord, in fact, we were against you. We were opposed to you. We wanted to be ruler of our own lives. And we were headed for destruction. But praise you, God, that you made a way for us. And Lord, I pray for all those that are listening. I pray for the children. I pray for anybody that's hearing the gospel maybe for the first time or maybe just afresh, that, Lord, you open their hearts and their minds. Help them see their need for a Savior to save them. Lord, you are the only one that can offer true peace, true joy, true delight. You can make broken people whole again. So I pray that today is the day of salvation for many. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.